This is a Federal News Network podcast. Prostate cancer is the most common type of cancer among America's veterans population. An estimated 500,000 veterans are living with a prostate cancer diagnosis today. So it makes sense that the Veterans Health Administration would make prostate cancer research a priority. One of the latest developments is a partnership with the Prostate Cancer Foundation. Among other things, it's helped to fund research into precision oncology, treatments that are tailored to each patient's specific physiology. Dr. Matt Reddick is the chief oncologist at the VA of Greater Los Angeles. He talked with me about some of the research questions VA is trying to answer. Prostate cancer is the most commonly diagnosed uh, major malignancy amongst veterans. In fact, uh, it's the most common major malignancy uh, amongst uh, males in the general U.S. population, uh, with um, somewhere around 200-250,000 new cases per year. Um, currently, there are approximately 500,000 veterans who are alive with the diagnosis of prostate cancer, and about 16 to 17,000 of them who have the most advanced stage of the disease that is called metastatic prostate cancer, meaning it's spread beyond the prostate to another organ. So it's a big problem. Uh, it's associated with uh, a lot of complications, what we call morbidity, as well as unfortunately mortality. And so it, it's a high priority uh, malignancy for the VA so that we can uh, better understand it and better treat it for our veterans. As far as we know, nothing specific about the veterans population per se, other than it tends to be older. So it is, is, is the rate of prostate cancer in the veterans population generally reflective of what you'd see in the same age groups in the general population? Uh, it is similar. There are some important questions that need to be addressed. One is the role of Agent Orange. So Vietnam veterans who've had boots in the ground on in Vietnam uh, were, are considered to be exposed to Agent Orange, which is a service-connected disease, prostate cancer associated with Agent Orange. Uh, in addition, the VA population is overrepresented by certain minorities, most notably uh, African-Americans, as compared to the general population. And African-Americans have a higher incidence of prostate cancer, and that's true in the VA system, uh, as well as a higher uh, mortality rate in the general population. It's not clear that there's a major difference in mortality in the uh, veteran population. Uh, <clears throat> one of the major factors that results in health disparity between African-Americans and Caucasians is access to care, and that is a factor that is minimized within the VA system. And in fact, many treatments that are used for prostate cancer patients, especially advanced prostate cancer patients, are more effective in African-Americans than Caucasians. Interesting. So you mentioned Agent Orange is one question. What are some of the other big research questions around prostate cancer that VA is working on specifically right now? Yeah, so prostate cancer is uh, a major area uh, focus of research. And when we think about research, we think of laboratory or bench research uh, and clinical research and something in between, which is called translational research, which bridges the divide between the lab and the clinic. And uh, all three of those types of research are ongoing at, at the VA. Some of the big questions that we need to answer is what is the role of certain environmental exposures, Agent Arn is a, is, a, is a good example, in the biology, the aggressiveness of prostate cancer? Does it result in a different 
uh, version of prostate cancer that's more aggressive, that has different genetic findings associated with it. And that's an important question that's ongoing and hopefully will be answered in the near future. Uh, along those lines, we also want to know if patients who have Agent Orange-associated prostate cancer have a different response to therapy. Also an important question that's ongoing and something that's being addressed in a number of clinical trials, including some that uh, I am conducting. Another big question is whether or not we can uh, use the patient's genetic background, the specifics of the patient's tumor, the genetics that are unique to the patient's tumor, in order to select the right treatment for the right patient. So historically, using drugs for cancers, including prostate cancer, has been kind of the sp throw the spaghetti at the wall approach where one size fits all. And clearly that's not the ideal approach. We want drugs that are going to have a higher likelihood of working in an individual patient. And knowing the specifics of the patient's tumor is really critical in order to make that happen. And we do that by performing genetic sequencing on the tumor and are able to pair a specific genetic mutation with a specific therapy. That's not done in all patients, uh, that is, the, the, the sequencing is done, but it's not all patients that have a mutation that can be paired with a specific drug. But the number of genetic changes that can be paired with a specific drug is increasing, and hopefully we'll, be ha we'll have a, a, a drug for, a, for every specific mutation in the relatively near future. And, and that that whole concept you were just talking about, I think, falls in the bucket of, of what's sometimes called precision oncology, right? You mentioned genetic sequencing is a, is a big part of that, but are, are there other factors that you look at to help tailor that treatment to a particular individual beyond the, the genetic uh, genetic sequencing? Yeah, so um, that's, that's exactly right. So precision oncology is basically using patient-specific features and characteristics that allow the selection of a specific therapy, a drug that is most likely to work. Now, the genetics is really the, the driver of precision oncology, but there are non-genetic, what we call biomarkers, factors that can be used to select patients for therapy, including fairly uh, straightforward uh, clinical factors. So, for example, uh, we know that uh, African-Americans respond to a specific type of vaccine much better than Caucasians, and the difference is quite striking. So just by having an uh, African ancestry, one is more likely to, to respond to this particular treatment. So we'd use uh, clinical factors. There are also what's called imaging biomarkers, where we have state-of-the-art uh, 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 PET scans that can tell us what it, the, um, uh, the pro patient's prostate cancer is like. Does it express a specific protein that can be targeted for therapy. And those are coming online. The scans have been now FDA approved, and there's um, uh, therapies that are going to be imminently approved based upon certain imaging biomarkers, some imaging characteristics. Uh, so the list goes on and on, but genetics is the main driver, but other factors are used to select the right drug for the right patient. And, and how mature is this whole concept of precision oncology in, in the prostate cancer space? Do, do we have any way to quantify how much more clinically effective it is than the throw the spaghetti against the wall approach that you mentioned? Yeah, so um, it, it's still in its relatively early days. So the technology to identify the genetic mutations is fairly 
mature. And the VA um, will do that on any patient with advanced cancer. In fact, not just prostate cancer or any cancer. Um, the proportion of patients who have a mutation that would qualify them for a precision treatment varies from cancer to cancer. It's about a third of all prostate cancer patients with advanced disease. The question is really, can we get the sequencing done on a national level so that there's no veteran that's left behind? The VA is a, a huge uh, integrated healthcare system. Of course, it's the largest integrated healthcare system in the United States. There are over 150 different VA medical centers, and that doesn't include all of the outpatient clinics. And as a consequence, there is variability in the knowledge base and the um, resources that an individual VA may have. So what we want to do as part of the Precision Oncology Program is to provide care to veterans irrespective of their geography. And we have a num number of programs that uh, have been initiated to achieve that. So a veteran doesn't have to be at one of the uh, main academic VA medical centers in order to achieve precision care. And uh, so, so that's a really important uh, feature of, of, of the precision oncology program in prostate cancer uh, so that we can democratize precision oncology amongst all of our veterans. This project uh, of precision oncology uh, in prostate cancer has been going on since 2018. It was a key uh, strategic partnership that the, the, the VA has, has started uh, between the, the VA and the Prostate Cancer Foundation, which is the largest philanthropic institution in the United States, uh, in the world for that matter, for prostate cancer research. And the Prostate Cancer Foundation initially funded this with $50 million. So it's a, an incredible gift that the VA has, has received, and uh, the VA has now expanded on this uh, so that the uh, program uh, can, can reach more and more veterans. And I assume one of the functions of that partnership would be to help export any anything that you learn in the VA setting to the broader health community. Is that a fair assumption? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. So the, the VA uh, has, in, has incredible resources in terms of data mining, a huge population of veterans. And when we put databases together, we don't want to keep it just for ourselves. We want to uh, um, make it accessible to researchers in the academic community who might not be uh, at a VA so that we can learn the most from the the data and the patients that we do have. Last thing I wanted to get to before we uh, before we run out of time here is a specific clinical trial that, that I know you designed and worked on where I think you're taking some of the drug therapies or at least one drug therapy that, that's common for prostate cancer and, and trying to see if it's effective in COVID-19 patients. I'm going to let you pronounce the drug for us, but, but tell us what, what questions you've been trying to answer through that trial. Yeah, so this was a, a study that we initiated um, uh, last year um, towards the height of, of COVID. Of course, we're having a, a resurgence uh, at this time, at least in, 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 in many states. And we were looking for uh, a novel way of treating COVID with an existing FDA-approved drug, a drug obviously that wasn't approved for COVID, but can be repurposed for the treatment of severe COVID. Uh, so we tested a prostate cancer drug that's commonly used. That's a hormone therapy called Daguerrelix. Um, and what it does is it temporarily suppresses male hormone levels. And the rationale for this, testing this type of therapy amongst COVID patients was related to 
the mechanism, the manner in which the virus enters human cells, the, the target cells, for example, on the lining of the lung. Well, <clears throat> there was a study published in March of last year, a landmark study, which demonstrated that the virus uses two key proteins on the surface of cells to gain entry. It's like the, the, the door that it needs to open in order to get into cells. And these two proteins, the names doesn't, don't matter, but one is called ACE2 uh, and the other one's called Tempris2, um, are well known if you're in, in, in the field of prostate cancer because we know that they're tightly regulated by male hormones. So male hormones cause more of this these proteins, these door, this door that the virus uses to get into cells, to be expressed or present on the surface of the cells that are targeted by COVID. So the idea is that if we can temporarily suppress male hormones, and uh, we would lower the amount of this, uh, these proteins, this doorway to entry of the virus into the into the target cell, and thereby effectively treat severe COVID. So we con conducted this study and it turns out we were able to do it very, very rapidly because we were using the clinical trials infrastructure of the precision oncology program, which was already in place, but was kind of on semi hold during COVID. So it was the, the, the infrastructure was already there. The VA um, uh, rapidly funded the study. The study was completed. And unfortunately, we're waiting for the, the results. It was a double blind study. Uh, and as the lead investigator, I'm not uh, allowed to know what the results are until they're completed. So this is something that uh, we're waiting for. There has been a study that was conducted with a similar drug in Brazil, which was published, which showed very, very striking uh, reduction in the duration of hospitalization and importantly mortality of hospitalized uh, patients with COVID. Now that's in, in Brazil, it's a different population. They have different uh, resources in, in that country as compared to the United States. But it was an interesting merging of, of, of prostate cancer and um, uh, COVID-19 knowledge into a clinical trial. That is super interesting. I'm just curious on, on one last thing. By reducing those number of doorways on a cell surface, is the thinking that you, you can reduce the spread of virus throughout the body or really primarily in critical tissues like lung tissue? Yeah, it, it really depends on whether or not the receptors, the, these doorways, are regulated by male hormones on all of uh, all tissues. We do see that they are regulated by male hormones in the main site of, of infection, which is the lining of the, the lungs and the respiratory system, the, the, the nasal cavity, the oropharynx, uh, as well as other important structures such as uh, the heart. Uh, some of the organs um, we don't know the, the regulation of, uh, so some of it's a little bit unknown, but the, the main source of the, the virus entering cells is the lung, and we do know that uh, the, the, the lung uses male hormones to ex induce the expression of these doorways, these proteins that the virus uses. That's Dr. Matt Reddig, the chief oncologist at the VA of Greater Los Angeles. You can find an extended version of our conversation on VA's prostate cancer research program at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. 
During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, 
what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the US Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening, 
to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.